Alrighty, um, so I grew up in the old Transvaal, on the Highveld, in Pretoria, uh, where we regularly refought the Anglo-Boer War with the little Afrikaner kids from their school. But my, I, I spent my childhood running around in the felt barefoot. I don't know if you guys did the same, uh, but I think most South Africans lived without shoes. Um, many of us still do live without shoes, I'm just checking, but you're actually all wearing shoes today, even Ella. Um, it's amazing, she just kicked them off right now. Um, so yeah, but I, I think most of us as South Africans, we grew up living without shoes on. I remember a holiday in England when I was like eight or nine, and my family were horrified, the English family, because everywhere we went as kids, the first thing we did was take our shoes off. And they just couldn't understand it, these poor, poor, poor people in England. How can you live without shoes on? But the, w the result of this, of course, of running around in the felt barefoot, is that we would regularly step on devil thorns. Now, I don't know if we get devil thorns here in Durban. I don't see them much. But what a devil thorn is, it's, it's, it's about that big, I guess. About, you know, maybe a centimeter, centimeter and a half across. It, it, the base is like a round, solid thing. And then it's got two very big spikes that stick out the top and a few little ones at the bottom. And it, it kind of like, however this thing falls, it always ends up with those two little spikes sticking up at the top. So it actually looks like a devil with the two little devil's horns, but it's a real devil because those spikes. And you'll stand on them running around in the felt. You can run through a field of paper thorns and they sting, but it's fine. You can just brush them off and you're fine. But step on a devil thorn and I mean, it, they, it draws blood. What was even worse was riding your bicycle around. And again, you can ride your bicycle through a field of paper thorns, no big deal. But ride over one devil thorn and that's it, out with a puncture kit because that's your bike's done. So as I, I haven't seen many of them here in KZN. I think it's a, a Gauteng thing. Um, but what I do suffer from here is my cycads. So I don't know if any of you got cycads. But uh, every now and then you've got to trim the branches around the edges and you've got to clear them out. And I know I should do my gardening with proper leather gardening gloves on. But I just can't be bothered. I did have a pair of gloves, lost them, no, no idea where they are. So now I go and I clip and cut and pull and whatever. And, and in, in, invariably, inevitably, I'm going to get poked by one of those thorns on the end of the cycad. We've got one. It's a blue one. It's like a Cape Town, a Cape cycad of some sort and the ends are, they're poisonous i swear they're poisonous and you'll get them and, and the end will the little end will break off and they'll go all infected and inflamed and like the pain over the next two or three days and so so i'll get them in the ends of my fingers or in my hands the very worst is getting them on your knuckle and then just every time you bend it's just agony and um, i'm regularly sitting with a needle trying to you know for the next two or three days digging holes in my hand trying to get these stupid thorns out of my hands <coughs> i remember once as a kid um being pushed into a uh a shrubbery a thorn shrubbery and got a thorn in my uh in my wrist and um didn't think much of it i was probably about eight or ten at the time and the next day woke up and there was a red line a purplish red line moving up my arm it was it was it was just past my elbow and I, I, I was terrified that if this red line got to my heart, I would die. Because that's it, right? I mean, it's poison, right? I'm going to die. So that necessitated a trip to the doctors and out with the scalpel. And he had to remove it with what felt like bright tongs. Um, 
and then wrapped up in bandages for a couple of days. A thorn in the flesh is not a nice thing to have. You want to do your best to get it out. We need to remove the thorns, right? But we're going to be uh, in, in 2 Corinthians this morning where we're going to read what is probably one of the better known passages in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. Um, so if you'd like to follow on with me, uh, check in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And here's what Paul says. I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I, I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that a man is not permitted to tell. I'll boast about a man like that, but, but I'm not going to boast about myself except my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would be a fool. Sorry, I would not be a fool because I'm speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I say and what I do. So to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in, heart, in, weakness, in, in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, last Sunday, um, reading the, the end of, of chapter 11 of this chapter, um, Paul had started off this whole thing of, I don't want to boast. I'm not going to boast. The worst thing, you guys think that boasting is a great thing, but I don't want to do it because it's just, it's not helpful at all. And he says, but you know what? Because you want me to boast, I will boast. And here's what I'm going to boast about. You guys are boasting about success and victory and stuff that you've got and accomplishments. Here's, here's what my boast is. I'm a basket case. That's what I'm going to boast in. Uh, that was what last week. I'm a basket case. And so... This week, he carries on the same thing. He says, so you, we're still in the whole boasting thing, right? So even though we're in a different chapter, it's still the same thing. We're still talking about boasting. So the, 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 there was this group of guys that called themselves super apostles at Corinth. And they'd set themselves up as wonderful. Look at our success. Look at everything we're doing. And it seems like one of the things that they were boasting about was all the wonderful visions, dreams, mystical experiences that they were having. They were saying, essentially, you can trust us. We're genuine apostles. And do you know how we're genuine apostles? Because we've had visions. If we have a vision, if I've had a dream, I saw a picture of a butterfly, and it was on a flower, and then it went to you, and that's God speaking. If we have that kind of vision, then you know that I'm from God. Then you can know that I am an apostle. 
God just spoke to me this morning. An angel called Emma appeared to me and said, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. And then what they did was that they then accused Paul of being less than that. They say, you can't trust Paul. How can Paul possibly claim to be an apostle? When was the last time Paul had a decent vision? I mean, if you want to have a real apostle who's going to really lead you, who's going to really speak to you from God, you need someone who's getting fresh revelation every day. And Paul, what's Paul doing? Paul just gives us the same message week after week. Jesus and the cross, Jesus and the cross, Jesus and the cross. It's just so boring. We need something new and something fresh and something exciting. That's what we'll give you. You need to skip up on Paul because he's just not giving you what we can give you. You can't trust Paul because he's just not hearing new stuff from God every day. And you know what? Part of me goes, I get it. I understand that. When someone comes and says, oh, God spoke to me this morning and I've, I've received this new revelation. It's all very exciting, isn't it? It's like, oh, if God spoke to this person, perhaps I'd, I'd better listen closely. Uh, but to be honest, it's a little scary when someone claims that. Um, I mean, God has revealed everything he needs to reveal of himself in the Bible. So anything that adds to this should be, well, run away. Uh, but Paul says this. He says, okay, let, let's play your game. Let's pretend that we can do this boasting about revelations and visions. He says, I know this guy. There's this guy I met. This is the guy that I know. Let me tell you about him and his visions. And so he says, let me tell you about this guy. He went to the third heaven. And some people get all lost in that. What on earth is the third heaven? How many heavens are there? Which one do you go to? Is this purgatory? What's going on? Simple, uh, the simple way to understand this is just the, the Jewish way of thinking at the time is that there were three heavens. The first heaven is where the birds fly in. Birds, butterflies, and bats. You can see them and hear them this morning wafting around somewhere. That's the first heaven. The second heaven is where the sun, moon, and stars hang out. That's like a little bit higher up, right? And I, I think we, you know, we, we would maybe talk about stratosphere and ionosphere and whatever other spheres they are. But they would talk about the birds. That's the first heaven. The sun, moon, and stars. That's the second heaven. And then God must be beyond that. He'll be, he'll be in whatever's beyond that in the third heaven. So that, that's all that Paul is saying here. God's up there somewhere. And Paul says, this guy that I know went and encountered God out there somewhere. Uh, he talk, calls it paradise. And that's a, a word that was borrowed from, from the Persians. Paradise just means a walled garden um, that's designed for a king. And the Jews would talk about the Garden of Eden being the first paradise. And then they look forward to the future, to when, when all is resolved and everything is fixed. And they talk about the future paradise, or the second Eden. And currently, they would say, and God's living in paradise at the moment. That's where God is. And so Paul says, I know this guy. And he went to paradise, to the third heaven, whatever you want to call it. He went there. And then he says, the, the, the experience was so real, I don't know whether he actually physically left the earth and appeared there in the body, or if he had an out-of-body experience. Paul says, the, 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 the experience was so real, but I can't tell you which one it was. I don't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. But what it was is when he got there, he heard stuff that no one should ever hear. He, God spoke and, and said, I've given you secrets, but you can't tell anyone else. That's quite a, a fancy thing to be part of. Uh, and to have, to have known a guy like that, to hear words too wonderful to express. I was listening to a guy this week. He says, it's, imagine it's a bit like this, that you're washing the dishes this afternoon. So he's an American, so it might be different here. But, you know, you're washing your dishes this afternoon and a, a black SUV pulls up in your driveway and guys in suits get out with a little thing in their ear and they open the door and say, excuse me, sir or ma'am, we'd like you to come with us. 
and you go with them in the van around the corner and you get into the helicopter and the helicopter takes you to, I don't know, the union buildings and you're taken in through the back door to meet the president and you sit down with Cyril and Cyril Ramaphosa says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. There's just a few things I'd like to tell you. We've figured out the, the source of the coronavirus and we know who set it off and we've got the, the, the vaccine and it's going to go out tomorrow, but you can't tell anyone. And then he sends you home. And you get home and your wife says, what have you been doing for the last hour and a half in the kitchen? Well, I'd love to tell you, but I can't. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here, right? This has been this wonderful experience. And this guy that I know can't tell you. And then to get it even more complicated, Paul says, it, says to him, and that guy, that was me. It was me who did that. It was me who had that experience. And you go, why, Paul? Why on earth do you do this whole convoluted third person, I know this guy? Why don't you start at the beginning by saying, hey, guess what? I went to heaven. I got a free trip. And, and, and I think the reason that he's doing that is that Paul is making this point, right? That spectacular visions are not the basis of spirituality and faith and the gospel. And so Paul says, I've had these mind-blowing visions mind-blowing revelations but i'm not going to boast about them i'm not going to even tell you about them there's stuff that i'm not even going to put down on paper i'm not going to even speak about it because it's not about me and what what wonderful visions god has given me my uh, my, my my role as an apostle and my value as a human being is not based on whether or not i've had a vision so let me say this, if you've had a vision or a dream or some other kind of mystical experience, that's wonderful. And it's a great thing. And you should treasure that moment, just as Paul treasured that moment. But the experience of that vision or dream or mystical experience does not make you more loved or more special in the eyes of God. And when somebody else comes along and says, I've had this wonderful vision, they say, well, that's very nice. But that doesn't make them any more special or any more significant in the eyes of God. That moment, that vision does not validate your faith. You can't even say, I know I'm a Christian because I had a vision. Because lots of people who aren't Christians apparently have visions. I've got to say, I get a little bit bleak with all the nonsense that sometimes goes around in Christian circles where people make all these wild and wacky claims about visions and dreams that they've had. And I, I, I get that some of them are absolutely 100% true and I'm delighted for them, but there's a lot of others that just may leave me shaking my head and wondering. There's always a book on sale at the bookshop uh, about some guy who died and went to heaven. And in heaven, he frolicked with Jesus in the waves or went off to some room somewhere, went and saw his house being built and got to stand with Jesus and discuss exactly what shade of Italian marble is going to be laid out in his new mansion in heaven. As though a trip to heaven is about figuring out, um, you know, internal de de decorations. I mean, seriously? There was a very popular one not so long ago where there'd been a car accident and uh, with a family and the eight-year-old boy had died and been resuscitated. And the boy apparently had gone to heaven, told dad the story. Dad wrote it in a book. And the book became a bestseller. And the family became these, this huge celebrity family. Went to churches all over the world telling the story of everything that had gone on. And about 10 or 12 years later, they're busy turning this book, this story, this event of this child who died and gone to heaven and saw Jesus. And Jesus sent him back and how wonderful it was. They're busy turning this into a movie. And halfway through the filming of it, the 8-year-old boy who is now a 20-year-old goes... I was lying. 
I made it all up. <laughs> and it destroys so many people because so many people look at it and go, um, There's so many people who, who, who put some measure of abs actual faith in that story, in that event, as though this somehow validates the truth of who God is, based on on this imaginary dream that some kid has had. Charles, why don't you come sit in the shade, man? Come sit in the shade. Well, somebody in help. Somebody will help you. Bryce will help you. <laughs> Hey, you're wobbling. Wherever you can find a spot of shade, Charles. That's better. That's much better for you. Too old for the sun. The point is this, right? You can't put your faith in someone else's experience. In fact, to be honest, you can't even put your faith in your own experiences because your own brain will lie to you from time to time. And so Paul says, listen, I've had those moments and I could make a deal, a big deal out of them because they're real. But he says, I don't want to because my faith is not based on a um, subjective personal experience. Our faith is based on the objective life, death and resurrection of Jesus. My faith is not based on an experience I've had. My faith is based on what Jesus has done. I know that God loves me, not because he gave me a vision. I know God loves me because he gave me Jesus. And that's the rock that we build our faith, our faith on. So what Paul does then, he just repeats what he says last week. I'm not going to boast about the things that you guys think are important. Here's what I boast about. I boast in my weaknesses. Instead of boasting about the spectacular that's going to draw a crowd and get everyone gobsmacked by how wonderful it is, I'll boast in my frailty. In fact, he says, I want you to judge me, not on my wonderful miracles and visions and dreams. I want you to judge me based on what I do and what I say. I think he said that at the end of verse 6. I want you to judge me on what I do and on what I say. He says that in, in, in I think it's First Timothy, where he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Those are the two things to be aware of. It's not what dreams and visions and spectacular successes you've had. It's how you live, your integrity, your honesty, uh, your love for God, and, and your doctrine. Who, who Jesus is, who God is. Paul says those are the two things that we base our faith on. So that's Paul's wonderful vision of heaven. And having had that wonderful vision of heaven, Paul has a, the woeful experience of a thorn. And he acknowledges, he says, I ended up with a devil's thorn stuck in my flesh. And the reason, there is a purpose for having this thorn, he says, the reason for having this thorn is to stop me from becoming conceited. Which is an interesting thing for Paul to acknowledge. To say that I could well become conceited. There's the potential for me to be proud. Paul says, that's my tendency. I have a tendency to be proud. I want to boast. I want to go, oh, look at me, how wonderful I am and the wonderful experiences I've had. Which is kind of nice for us to know that if Paul was tempted by pride, then, you know, we're tempted too. And so there, there is this temptation to boast about this wonderful thing that I've got from God. But Paul says, but God's intention is to keep me humble. And so he talks about this thorn in the flesh. 
So there's a couple of things about it. <coughs> the word thorn in Greek means a couple of things. It can either mean just a, a little splinter in your finger that irritates, but it can also mean a, a sharpened stake that pins you to the ground. So either of those, and either of those will work. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll get to it later, but some of you have experienced the little irritating splinter, and others of you are wriggling on the ground at the end of a sharpened stake. We'll get there. Uh, the second thing, we, we, although Paul's talking about this thorn in the flesh, we don't know exactly what Paul means by this. Um, some people have tried, well, lots of people try to figure out what, what did he mean by the thorn in the flesh. Some people say it was actually a literal thorn that he stood on that has gone gangrenous, and they're being, having to cut out bits of his foot. Every couple of weeks they're cutting more out. Uh, so some people think that. Others think maybe it was a, a, a euphemism for other, some other kind of sickness. Maybe Paul had malaria. Mary, maybe he had um, um, epilepsy. Some people have suggested that Paul was slowly going blind and could see less and less as the weeks and months went by. Others say maybe this is a reference to Paul's enemies that are constantly you know, getting, in his, getting in his face and getting in his way. We don't know what it was. What we do know is that it was something that constantly gave Paul trouble. And then the question is, where did it come from? Well, Paul tells us it was a messenger of Satan. It's an angel from the devil that came. And it's this devil's thorn that's stabbing Paul. It's causing him suffering. He says he's being tormented by it. But it resulted in humility, which doesn't sound like the devil's job, does it? I mean, the devil's job surely is to incite pride, not humility. So as much as this is from the devil, it seems that it's accomplishing a different purpose altogether. So even though, in fact, Paul tells us this, even though this is an angel of the devil, he says it's been sent as a gift by God. So even though it's from the devil, it's also from God. It's both. Here's the thing, right? Bad things happen, and yet God uses bad things to accomplish his purposes in our lives. And Paul says, that's what's happened to me here. He says, bad things have happened. I'm under pressure. I'm suffering. I'm being tormented. But it's being result, it's resulting in good things um, by God. Ultimately, all things come from God. Even bad things are under the sovereignty of His hand. So, uh, while Paul may have faced some kind of nasty torment and unpleasantness, ultimately, <coughs> this comes from the hand of God to humble him. And so, again, I, I read somewhere this week that rather be tormented by the devil than be destroyed by pride. And that's what Paul is thankful for. And so in all of this, his visions and his thorn, Paul says this. He says, I'm going to boast in weakness. So we're just back to that again. I'm going to boast in weakness. And right at the end, that last verse, Paul gave us a, a few words just to help us understand a little bit better what he means by weakness. Right? So he says, I'm going to boast in my weakness. And then he talks about insults, persecutions, hardships, and difficulties. Um, because we said last week, you remember, that, that when Paul says, I'm going to boast in my weakness, he's not talking of boasting in physical weakness. He's not a physically weak guy. He's faced whippings and beatings and stonings and Roman jail time. He's not a weakling. 
He's also not going to boast about moral weakness. He's not boasting about his drunken revelries on Friday night. These are the things that he's going to boast about. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. So John Piper helped me a little bit with understanding some of this, right? So insults. You've all been insulted. Um, you probably insult each other. Right? So, um, an insult when someone, when, when, when someone thinks of clever ways of making you, your faith, or your lifestyle, or your words look stupid, or weird, or inconsistent. Right? So you're, you're insulted not necessarily because of your faith, but you're insulted because of, I don't know, your looks, your nose, your shape, your hairstyle, the car you drive, um, whatever it is. You all faced insults at some stage in your life. Hardships. Hardships are the circumstances that are forced upon you. They're the reversals of fortune against your will. Any situation where you feel trapped in. You didn't plan for this. You didn't think it would work out this way when you started out. But you're now in it. And it's hard. Some of you face that. We all face that at some point. Persecutions specifically related to our faith words sorry wounds abuses painful painful circumstances acts of prejudice or exploitation from people because of your faith or because of your moral commitments when you're not treated fairly and you're getting a raw deal and i like to just say this every now and then when, when the word persecution comes up that we need to differentiate being persecuted for your faith and being persecuted for being a chop and some christians Say, oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. You're just being treated the way you asked to because you're acting like a chop. I'm being insulting now, I know. Um, and just, you know, differentiate there. And then the fourth word he says is calamities or distresses and difficulties. And the idea of calamity is, is uh, one of pressure, of being crushed, of being weighed down, where the circumstances overcome you with stress and tension. Can you identify with one of those words? Some of you can identify with all four of them all at once, right? We're face, some of you are facing calamities. The, the crushing weight of pressure and stress that's upon you. Some of you are facing the hardships. Things haven't worked out the way you planned. The, there's been a reversal going on here, and everything that you've built up is gone. And this was not the plan that you had two years, five years, 20 years ago. Six months ago. Some of this is just the effects of COVID and lockdown. Some of it is just the effects of the events of life. You faced the insults and you've foolishly retaliated. These are just the events, the weaknesses, the weak moments of life that all of us face. And Paul says, I'm going to boast in these things, which is kind of a weird thing to do, right? I mean, Surely, surely we should rather boast in success, boast in overcoming, boast in being strong. Wouldn't it be much rather to say, let's be strong, and when you're insulted, just give it straight back, right? Now, when you're in hardship, just dig yourself out of that hole, man. Take charge of your own destiny. If you're being persecuted, turn the persecution back on them. Make it so they'll never want to challenge you again. You're facing that calamity and you're being under pressure. Let the pressure turn you into a diamond, right? That's the self-help stories we hear. But Paul says none of that. He doesn't go anywhere with all of those things. He just simply says, I'll boast in the weakness. 
And Paul's going to say three things that should sustain us in weakness. Because you and I will. We'll face these same weaknesses. We'll face these same events. And, and we can't be sustained by visions and dreams. We can't be sustained by ecstatic experiences that come by once in a while. And we can't boast in our own strength and in our own victory and our own success and our own, our own overcoming because there are times when we just don't overcome. There are times when we, when we do stumble and fall. Those are not the things that will sustain us in hard times. And Paul says three things, gives three statements to hold on to in difficult times. The first is when he quotes what Jesus has said to him, where Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you. The all-sufficient grace of Jesus. So I've just got to say, is he enough? Is Jesus enough? And so Jesus is saying to Paul, Paul, no, don't ask for comfort. Don't ask for ease. It's not about victory or change. My grace is enough. And it's hard to ask that because I want change. I want ease. I want comfort. I want the hardship to go away. I want the circumstances to change. I want the weak moments to pass away very quickly. I want the success. And yet Jesus' words are, my grace is sufficient, is sufficient to sustain you in weakness. My grace in the face of weakness and hardships and insults and calamity is enough. One old theologian, Dr. Charles Hodge, he translates it this way. He says, my love is sufficient for you. Is it enough to be loved by him? Many would say, no, it's not. And yet, this is where our faith stands. It is enough to know that I'm loved by Him. Charles Spurgeon said when he was considering the word sufficient, he says, it's like a little fish being concerned that it might drink the river dry. Now there's some scientific concerns there, right? Do fish drink water? I don't know. Um, but even if it is, is it ever possible for the little fish, the tiny little fish, to drink the river dry? And of course the answer is, no, don't be foolish. There is more than enough water for your need, oh little fish. Or should you and I say this morning, listen guys, breathe shallowly. There might not be enough oxygen in the atmosphere if you breathe too heavily today. And of course, no, I mean, look, global warming, yes, one day the oxygen may just run out. But you know what? The grace of Jesus will never run out. There is always enough. So fill your lungs, right? Take a deep breath. Be filled with the grace of Jesus because His grace is enough. In our troubles, in our calamities, in our distresses, in our hardships, His grace is sufficient. Now, of course, a lot of people will say, yes, His grace is sufficient to get me out of the trouble. But that's not the point. It's not enough to get me out. And I'm not saying that He can't get us out and He won't get us out of the trouble. But that's not the point. It's not as though He's given grace in order to change your fortunes. Simply that His grace is enough. And it will sustain us. Because His power, His strength, is perfected in weakness. And Jesus glorified in you. 
John Piper did a couple of sermons on this passage. One of the sermons that he, he started off with this. Paul realizes that his body and soul are now have now become the theater of shaming Satan and glorifying Christ. Which I think is a quite cool way of putting it. That Paul says, my body, my soul is a theater and you guys get to watch. Right? This is the movies. And here's what you're watching in this movie. In the midst of my weakness and frailty and what looks like failure, here's what you're watching in the movies. The shaming of Satan and the glory of Jesus. Because no matter the thorns that Satan brings along, I will boast in weakness. It's about the glory of Christ. And so here's Paul, despite the very worst stakes and thorns that are driven into him by this messenger of Satan, and despite his best devices to bring you down and leave you defeated and leave you destroyed and disheartened, the grace of Jesus is sufficient. It is sufficient in weakness. For the, for the very things that look like our end become the very point at which Satan is shamed and Jesus is glorified. He gives strength to the weary. And so while our world seeks power to escape weakness, the gospel gives us power to endure weakness in love. His grace is sufficient for you. And from a guy called Stephen Altrogi, he says, um, God could have delivered Paul and said to him, my power is made perfect in my deliverance. He could have said, my deliverance is sufficient for you. But he doesn't. Instead, he leaves Paul in his crippled state and says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power made perfect in weakness. In weakness. God's power at its greatest when we are at our weakest. And what we need most in our weakness is God's sufficient grace. Not more strength and not a dramatic change of circumstances. We need God's grace that is sufficient for the very circumstances we find ourselves in. It's so backward from how the world thinks and how the world operates. We want to show our strength. We want to act like it's, we've got it all together. But this is the opposite of how God works. His power made perfect in weakness. So Paul's first statement for us to hold on to in, in, in weakness this morning, his grace is sufficient. But the second thing that he says is that Christ's power may rest. He says, I will boast in weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And again, Paul boasting in weakness, not success. He says, I'll gladly boast in the calamities and the distresses and the disasters and the persecutions. It's the very thing that these other super apostles would try and hide and avoid. They would say, listen, the presence of suffering, the presence of difficulty would imply that God has abandoned you. The presence of persecution means that you just don't have enough faith. The presence of these things in Paul's life diminishes him as an apostle. We need to highlight our victories and our strengths and our successes. And, and Paul says, I'll do the very opposite. I'll boast in my weaknesses. Because then I know that the power of Christ dwells in me. It's so much more than just Christ resting on me. 
It's Christ dwelling in me. In fact, in fact, it's that other thing. It's 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 Christ has pitched His tent with me. It's like thinking back to the Old Testament and the tabernacle in the wilderness. That Christ has pitched His tent next to me. We tend to think that when everything is going well, that's when God is with us. And we tend to look at people whose whose life is all together, and we say, "Wow, God has blessed that person." They've, I mean, look at it. Everything is smooth and simple. God must be with that person. And Paul says, Christ is with me in my weakness. It's in my weakness that he pitches his tent alongside me. You want to know where Jesus pitches his tent, Paul says? He doesn't pitch his tent where there is success and victory. He pitches his tent where there is weakness and sorrow and calamity and distress. So again, are you facing insult and hardship and calamity this morning? Is that where you are? Then, then know this. Christ has pitched his tent right with you. He's right there. Lean into his strength. Know this. That when you're being poked by the thorns... And the wounds have become infected. And you're wriggling at the end of the stake. His power has taken up residence inside you. So Paul says, my grace is sufficient. He says, the power of Christ rests on me. And then finally he says, this is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. And again you're kind of going, what kind of masochist is Paul? That he would delight in these kind of things. Who on earth finds joy and delight in, in, in hardship? Oh boy, yay! More hardships coming my way. Yippee! No one does that. But Paul says, when I'm weak, then he is shown to be strong. So to delight in weakness is not to deliberately destroy your business. It's not to deliberately ruin your health so that God can somehow be glorified. But rather that in those moments when those things inevitably do happen, when the thorn of the devil pierces and whether it becomes just that little irritating splinter or whether you're actually staked to the ground, in your, in your weakness, in that moment, the glory of God is on display. And so that those around can see that you can't, that you can't do it. That you don't have it in you. That you can't survive. You can't rest in your own abilities. You can't trust in your own strength. You can't rely on your own cleverness. And in those moments, God is glorified. Because, you know, if I was strong enough, if I was clever enough, if I was smart enough, if I was brave enough, if I had sufficient resources, then I'm great. And I'm wonderful. And I've done it. And I've got myself over the finish line. But when my reserves are empty, then the only reason I get over the finish line is because he carried me there. And in fact, the, the only reason I, I got started on the start line is because he carried me there. The thorns will come. And I know that for many of you, there will seem like a time you've got enough thorns to weave your very own crown to fit nicely on your head because there have been a lot of them. 
And if that's the case, then Paul would say, wear them with pride. And when those thorns prick and pierce and some become infected and others draw blood, others leave you wriggling at the end of that stake on the ground, in those moments, know this, that his grace is sufficient. Will you hear him whisper, my grace is enough. It won't be exhausted, even if you are. My power rests on you. At the point of your greatest weakness, his presence is assured. When you're weak, he is glorified. And so I've just got to ask today, is Christ enough? Is he really enough? You may remember our church came from two years ago. We listened to uh, Wayne Cudero saying something like this. You, you, you don't know that Christ is all you need until he is all you've got. Is he really all you need? Or are you still living... Are you still living a life of self-reliance and self-contentment, living from strength to strength, exerting all your power to avoid weakness? Or is he enough? Paul prayed that the thorn be taken away. Pray earnestly that God take the thorn away. Pray earnestly. But over time, Paul's prayer changed. His prayer changed from, Lord, please take it away, to, Lord, may I endure I don't know how many times you must pray. Keep praying. But as you wait for his answer, know this. His grace is sufficient for you. His power rests on you. And in your weakness, he is shown to be strong. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we acknowledge that we are far too often weak. We face the insults, the hardships of life the calamities, and even sometimes the persecutions. And in the midst of all those hardships and difficulties, your grace is enough. Lord, sometimes we don't believe that. Sometimes we want to rely on our own strength. Sometimes we want to hold on to uh, everything that we have. And yet, Lord, we must acknowledge that we are never enough. And so, Lord, let us today say with faith, your grace is sufficient. It is enough to know that you have loved us, to know that you reside within us, and that we don't need to look for mystical experiences, but instead we can look to the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Enjoy your Sunday.